All right, good afternoon, everyone. I hope you are all uh, sufficiently nourished uh, so far. Uh, thank you for joining us for this uh, Cato Capitol Hill briefing. My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and uh, I'm joined today by four of my colleagues who are going to be discussing some of the legislative opportunities uh, and priorities facing the current Congress. I'm sure you're all enjoying the second session uh, so far. Uh, the, the plan here is for each of my colleagues to speak for about 10 minutes each, and then we're going to turn it over to you uh, for some Q&A. What I'm going to do is briefly introduce uh, my, my colleagues in the order in which they will speak. They're going to be speaking about immigration, poverty, uh, agriculture policy, as well as infrastructure. And the first speaker is going to be David Beer, who's an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. He's been published in a number of big publications, such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, and USA Today. Before coming to Cato, uh, David was at the Niskanen Center, but he's also spent some time here working for Congressman Raul Labrador. The second speaker will be Colin Grabo, who's a policy analyst in Cato's Trade Policy Center. Uh, his research mostly focuses on U.S. trade with Asia as well as domestic forms of trade protectionism. Uh, this includes things such as the Jones Act and also our policies towards sugar. He is a graduate of James Madison University and holds an MA in International Trade and Investment Policy from George Washington University. He will be followed by Chris Edwards, who is the Director of Tax Policy at Cato, as well as the editor of DownsizingGovernment.org. Uh, he is also, by the way, the editor of this new book, Downsizing Federal Government Spending, which is available on our website as well as Amazon. Uh, Chris told me uh, before we started that if you uh, shoot him an email, he'd be happy to, to send you a copy. And finally, we will uh, hear from Mike Tanner, who is Cato Institute Senior Fellow. He leads our research into social security, welfare policy, and healthcare. He's the author of numerous books. I believe the most relevant is Going for Broke. Is that right? Going for Broke. Uh, his writings have appeared uh, all over the place, including uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and he regularly contributes to National Review. Uh, I have told my, uh, I've told David and everyone else that around the 10-minute mark, I will start gesticulating to make sure that they uh, make way for the others. But for now, I only ask you to please join me in welcoming David Beer. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. As was mentioned, my name is David Beer, and I am one of two immigration policy analysts at the Cato Institute. My colleague Alex Narasta and I work on this issue pretty much 24-7, and we are happy to engage with you uh, on this issue, uh, review anything you may be working on, or research the topic uh, that uh, you may have an interest in. Um, so let's talk about the state of immigration in the United States right now in 2018. The average immigrant today is not only the most highly educated of all immigrants in American history, more have college degrees than Americans do. More immigrants today know English when they arrive than ever before in American history, and their children are learning the language faster than ever. According to the National Academy of Sciences, the average immigrant to the United States contributes in net present value terms between $92,000 and $173,000 more in taxes than they receive in benefits over the course of their entire lifetime. Immigrants are half as likely as native-born Americans to commit crimes and end up incarcerated 
in the United States. Immigrant terrorism has proven itself not to be a significant threat to Americans. Annually, you had just a one in 3.6 million chance of being killed annually in a terrorist attack committed by a foreigner on U.S. soil since 1975. One in 3.6 million. For comparison, your chance of being killed in a regular homicide is one in 14,000. It's not a significant threat. Illegal immigration along the southern border has not been as low as it is today since the Great Depression. Each border agent in 2017 apprehended just one border crosser per month. They're doing a lot of sitting on their hands recently. Over the last 10 years, the illegal population actually shrunk by almost a million. In other words, immigration in 2018 is going quite well. Yet right now, the United States has a rate of legal immigration as a share of its population of just 0.33%, meaning that Congress allows the U.S. population to grow by one-third of 1% 1 annually. For context, this rate is 37% lower than the historical average, and America's historical highs in the 20th century were four times higher as a share of its population as they are today. The U.S. has an annual rate of immigration, legal immigration, near the bottom of all developed countries. 17 OECD countries let in more immigrants as a share of their population than the United States does. Norway, Australia, and New Zealand all allow an annual flow four times higher than the United States. So, America's immigrants are doing better than they ever have, are more law-abiding than they ever have been, but we are accepting not nearly as many as we have in the past, and not nearly as many as our main competitors are today. In light of these facts, Congress should greatly increase legal immigration, and it should do so in the following ways. First, it should update the legal immigration quotas, which have not been updated since 1990, nearly three decades ago. Congress should do this by linking the family-sponsored immigration categories to the uh, population of the United States, so that as the number of families in the country increases, the availability of green cards for them also increases. It should link the employer-sponsored green cards to economic growth. So as the economy expands and the needs for workers expands, the number of green cards expands along with it. The U.S. population has increased by 30% since 1990, but there has been no change in the number of family-sponsored green cards. And the economy has doubled during that time, and there's been no increase in the number of employer-sponsored green cards either. So a good reform would be to increase the family and employer-sponsored categories uh, accordingly. Second, Congress should require that the administration stop counting the spouses and minor children of immigrant workers against the employer-sponsored green card limits. It makes no sense to say we should have a certain amount of workers come in each year, 
but reduce it by the number of spouses and children that they have? Why would we want to discount the amount of workers based on those who have families uh, and who are married? Third, we need to stop discriminating against populous uh, uh, immigrants from populous countries like India and China. Right now in the law, we limit each uh, nationality to no more than 7% of the overall uh, uh, green cards available in a given category every year. The per country limits, as they are known, are a leftover from the uh, openly racist reforms of the 1920s that uh, attempted to micromanage the racial stock of the country by preventing any one country from getting too many uh, permanent residency visas. This makes no sense in the context of the economy. Why would we want to make workers from India and China wait so much longer than uh, immigrants from any other country? Fourth, we need a temporary worker program for lesser skilled workers in year-round industries. Uh, right now, dairies, uh, construction, um, meat processing and, and many other industries that rely on workers that do not, in jobs that do not require a college degree have no work visa at all available for them. Uh, this encourages illegal immigration and uh, places an arbitrary limit on their productivity in those industries. At the same time, these lesser skilled workers should be offered permanent residency if they're successful and abide by the rules of this temporary uh, worker program over a period of time. The United States issues just 5,000 green cards to uh, employer-sponsored immigrants who lack college degrees, just 5,000. Um, this is just begging for uh, illegal immigration and people to reside in the country without authorization. Finally, I just want to make a quick aside to talk about our non-employer uh, sponsored uh, immigration programs since they have received uh, so much attention uh, recently in the media. These categories, which include the diversity visa lottery, the family uh, sponsored immigration categories, and uh, refugees and asylees, uh, constitute 93% of all immigration uh, to the United States right now, um, only 7% are employer-sponsored immigrants. Uh, if you count illegal immigration, the, the share would drop even further. So all of those facts that I laid out at the beginning about how well immigrants are doing is with a system that does not prioritize employer-sponsored immigration uh, hardly at all. Um, obviously, I would like to see employer-sponsored immigration increase dramatically, uh, and it should. Uh, we should prioritize more skilled immigration. It, it benefits the United States. It increases our innovation. Um, but these other categories that exist are providing an economic benefit to the country. They're, they're uh, letting in skilled immigrants as well as unskilled immigrants that we need in certain industries. So getting rid of them and, and not replacing them with anything else would be a, a major blow to the economy, and there's absolutely no economic argument for doing so. Moreover, I see no argument for why we should eliminate the right of American citizens to sponsor their immediate family members. These categories only apply to uh, immediate relatives of uh, the person who is you know, the family member who is being sponsored. So you're talking about parents, 
spouses, children, and siblings. That's what my definition of my immediate family is. And so why would we get rid of that right for us as American citizens? It really doesn't make sense from that standpoint either. America is an outlier when it comes to the ratio of family-sponsored immigration compared to employer-sponsored immigration. But as a share of their populations, Canada and Australia both allow a higher rate of family-sponsored immigration than the United States does. And humanitarian immigration, for that matter, as well, refugees and the like. The way to fix America's failure to prioritize employer-sponsored, merit-based immigration is to increase it, not to target the rights of Americans uh, to sponsor people or to uh, eliminate our humanitarian uh, visa programs. I disagree with the diversity visa lottery in, on principle, but again, getting rid of it without replacing it with something better uh, would do harm uh, to the economy. Um, there are many other reforms that the system needs, uh, but I see that I am out of time, uh, so thank you for yours. Thank you all for coming, um, and thanks to Matthew for moderating today's event. Uh, I'm going to speak about the U.S. Sugar Program. As a programming note, I have a, my remarks will be largely drawn from a forthcoming paper about the Sugar Program, uh, which I'm hoping will be released in March, but no promises. So if you find what I say to be interesting and you want to learn more, be on the lookout for that. Now, living in a capitalist country, I think one could reasonably um, assume that sugar production and decisions about things like how much sugar should be sold, the price of sugar is largely dictated by market forces. Unfortunately, to assume that would be wrong. In fact, sugar in this country is riven, is shot through with government intervention and central planning. So much so that the more one learns about the sugar program, the more you might start to wonder which side really won the Cold War. In fact, I think it's worth noting that the sugar program is embedded within a five-year plan. We call it the Farm Bill, which of course is up for renewal this year. So what is the U.S. sugar program? How does it work? What are the costs? And what can be done about it? Basically, there are four main components of the sugar program. The first are price support loans. These are loans made by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Commodity Credit Corporation to sugar processors. For every pound of either beet sugar or cane sugar that they provide as collateral, a certain amount of credit of, of loans are extended. Uh, this is a rate of 18.75 cents for cane sugar and 25.09 cents for every pound of beet sugar that is offered as collateral. Now, an important note about these loans is that they're non-recourse, which means that should there be a default on the loans, the USDA cannot seek any compensation beyond the collateral that is provided. So, and furthermore, not only can you default on these loans and not have to suffer anything beyond surrendering that collateral, you can go right back and take another loan the next year with no consequences. Now, this is very important because these loan rates effectively serve as a price floor. The USDA does not want uh, to lose money on these loans. They don't want defaults, so they have an incentive to ensure that the price of sugar is maintained at these rates of 24.09 cents or 18.75 cents for, for uh, cane sugar. So they have an incentive to keep the price artificially high to avoid these defaults. Now, how do they do that? Well, the second element of the 
of the sugar program is what's called marketing allotments. Basically, every year the USDA sets an, what they call an overall allotment quantity. This is effectively a limit on how much sugar can be sold in the country each year. Uh, this is designed to both, again, avoid forfeitures, and also it reserves 85% of the market to domestic processors. Um, this, in turn, is further divided up. Within that 85%, 54.35% of this quantity is reserved for beet sugar and 45.65% for cane sugar. Um, here is the actual uh, marketing allotment provided by the USDA last year. It says, for example, for beet sugars, the Western Sugar Company is allocated 590,321 tons of beet sugar. Within the state of Florida, uh, the U.S. Sugar Corporation is allocated 1,066,600 tons of sugar, and so on. Uh, the third element of this program is what's called the Feedstock Flexibility Program. Basically, uh, the USDA has the option, if prices go down too low and they're concerned about defaults on these loans, that they can buy up sugar off the market to drive up prices, and then they sell it uh, via auction to bioenergy producers. So basically, they take sugar away from human consumption and sell it to uh, bioenergy producers if prices are in danger of becoming too low. And then lastly, there's what's called tariff rate quotas. Basically, this is a limit on how much sugar is allowed to be imported into the country. The United States has a World Trade Organization commitment of something like 1.2 uh, million tons of sugar each year. Beyond that, any sugar imported is slapped with a very hefty tariff on the order of, I think, 15 point uh, something cents per pound. Uh, for context, uh, Sugar normally last year, I think it went from anywhere from 17 to 25 cents. This almost doubles the cost of sugar. It basically prohibits foreign sugar from coming into the country. Uh, this is real life. This is how the program works. I'm speaking in broad strokes. There's some additional details, but this is basically how it works. To review, the government very consciously restricts sugar supply in order to boost prices, also that it doesn't lose money on loans, which I think are properly viewed as a form of business welfare. Basically, the USDA is the ringleader of a cartel. So what are the costs of this program? There are costs I think are easily quantifiable and some that are not so quantifiable and not as obvious. Very straightforward, there's an economic cost. We all pay more for products that use sugar. The cookies that are provided today, they cost more than what they otherwise would. If you go to the grocery store, you want to buy sugar, it costs more than what it otherwise would. Businesses have to pay more for the sugar they use. If you're a company that uses sugar, if you're a candy manufacturer, you have to pay more for sugar. Uh, over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a number of U.S. companies pack up and leave to go to Canada, go to Mexico. Why are they doing that? In large part because sugar is cheaper there. So we're losing jobs because of this. Um, another cost is that um, trade negotiations become more difficult. For example, the U.S. in 2004 negotiated a free trade agreement with Australia. Australia is a big sugar producer, top five. They wanted, no surprise, access to the U.S. sugar market. We didn't give them very much. In return, they wouldn't give us as much access to certain industries that the U.S. excels at. So everybody loses here. American consumers have to pay more, and Australians can't get U.S. products like they otherwise could. I think that there's also political cost. In the 2016 election, we heard a lot of talk about drain the swamp, and we heard about corruption and how the game is rigged. I think that the sugar program personifies this, and this is how uh, I think populist appeal comes about when people see programs like this. And lastly, I'd point out that uh, this is a small cost, but perhaps worth pointing out, 
Uh, Coca-Cola in the United States. Coca-Cola, arguably a quintessential American beverage, is made with high fructose corn syrup. You go to Australia, you go to Mexico, you go to Europe, it's made with real sugar. We drink an adulterated version of this beverage, all because of the U.S. sugar program. If you go to Coca-Cola's website, they even point out that among the advantages of high fructose corn syrup is that, quote, is historically cost substantially less than cane or beet sugar. It's also led to the phenomenon of American uh, grocery stores importing Mexican Coke. I don't think Mexico imports a lot of U.S. tequila, yet we import Mexican Coke. So what can be done about this? Fortunately, a number of members of Congress have caught on to this program and recognize its egregious nature and have put forward some legislation known as the Sugar Modernization Act of 2017, which has four key provisions. Uh, the first is the introduction of a mandate that gives the Secretary of Agriculture authority to ensure that this program operates on a net zero-cost basis. Effectively, if they lose money on the program, they can go to the sugar processors and seek compensation to restore the program to balance. Second thing it does is it terminates the feedstock fle flexibility program beginning in the 2020 crop year, which I mentioned earlier. It also scraps those marketing allocations that I mentioned. Uh, with regard to tariff rate quotas, it introduces a little bit of flexibility. Basically, if a country doesn't use all of their quota, they can transfer it to another country. Um, also, there's something called the stocks-to-use ratio, which uh, measures annual sugar usage, and this would be slightly expanded, which should translate into increased imports and lower sugar prices for U.S. consumers. The legislation is not ideal. The ideal legislation is we simply end this program, be done with it. I don't think that's politically feasible, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, but I still think it's a, it's a worthwhile step forward. Um, I also think it's worth judging uh, these pieces of legislation by their enemies, and on that count, it does pretty well. The U.S. Sugar Lobby has called it a sugar farmer bankruptcy bill. Um, I think that such overwrought rhetoric is properly viewed as a testament to the bill's virtues and a tacit admission that American consumers have been overpaying for the sugar they consume. Um, thank you for your time, and I will be happy to answer any questions during the Q&A. Hi there, I'm Chris Edwards. Thanks a lot for uh, coming today. I'm going to talk about infrastructure. The federal infrastructure debate is heating up. A, uh, the Trump administration has been promising an infrastructure plan and a six-page outline of uh, part of the Trump plan seemed to leak out to the media uh, yesterday. Uh, the Trump plan uh, calls for, uh, I, I think we'll call for $200 billion in new federal spending over the next 10 years. Uh, and the document released yesterday showed that about half of that would go to a new uh, so-called uh, incentive grant program, $50 billion would go to new rural grants, $20 billion uh, would be for new transformative grants, and then there's a bunch of other stuff as well. I'll give you my bottom line first. Uh, the uh, leaked Trump document yesterday, if that is the Trump plan, uh, would basically be more federal subsidies with more federal strings attached. Uh, it is totally uh, unneeded. Uh, state governments can raise their own money for their own infrastructure anytime they want. We don't need a new top-down uh, federal infrastructure plan. <clears throat> the problem with the Washington infrastructure debate is that I think it's being driven by a lot of false narratives, a lot of myths. And I'm going to go through five myths of infrastructure uh, today. Uh, myth number one is that the federal government has the main role in the nation's infrastructure. Uh, that is not true. 
The private sector has by far the biggest role in America's infrastructure. Uh, total private infrastructure investment uh, is about $2.3 trillion a year. Uh, that's investment in pipelines and broadband and cell phone towers and all that good stuff. Uh, about $2.3 trillion a year. That compares to total federal, state, local spending on infrastructure every year of about only one-fifth of that, about $460 billion a year. So the private is much uh, larger. And if you look at government infrastructure spending uh, and funding, uh, the, the great majority of it is at the state and local level, not the federal level. So the federal government has a very small uh, slice of the pie in infrastructure. Trump, unfortunately, seems to have accepted the idea uh, that the federal government should be in the driver's seat on infrastructure, uh, but it, it shouldn't be. Uh, federal intervention is counterproductive, uh, in my view. Uh, the good news, though, is that uh, you know, the private sector is the biggest investor in infrastructure, and the corporate tax reforms passed in December uh, will go a long way to boosting private infrastructure investments. So the tax bill was an infrastructure bill, and that is good news. Uh, myth number two is that federal aid to the states for infrastructure is crucial. Uh, the federal government provides $70 billion a year to state and local uh, governments for grants, for infrastructure, mainly highway grants. Uh, but that aid is not crucial because the states themselves have enormous taxing power. They want more infrastructure. They can raise their sales and income and gas taxes. Uh, states can issue debt to finance infrastructure. They can add user charges. Uh, and they can uh, uh, introduce uh, and pursue public-private partnerships uh, if they want more infrastructure. They don't need the federal subsidies. Uh, some people want to raise the federal gas tax, and President Trump has unfortunately suggested he may be uh, in favor of that. But states wanting more highway money can raise their own gas taxes anytime they want. About half the states have raised their own gas taxes in just the, in just the last uh, five years. So there's no advantage in raising federal uh, gas tax money for, for highways. The states can do that by themselves. By the way, 98% uh, of U.S. streets and highways are owned by state and local governments. The interstate highway system, it's owned by state governments. Uh, with ownership comes responsibility for funding, uh, in my view. So myth number three about infrastructure is that U.S. infrastructure is falling apart. Uh, some of it is, but as a general statement, that's not really true. Uh, people say highways are crumbling, they say bridges are falling down. Uh, that's not really true. Uh, the Department of Transportation collects data on the nation's 600,000 or so uh, bridges. The share of U.S. bridges that are structurally deficient has plunged from 22% back in the 90s to just 10% today. So our bridges are getting better all the time. Uh, the Department of Transportation also collects data on the surface quality uh, of our interstate system. Uh, those grades have been uh, rising and getting better since the 90s as well. So our bridges and highways uh, are getting better. It's true, highways are getting more congested, but the actual quality of the infrastructure is improving. Uh, some U.S. infrastructure is in trouble, uh, namely subway and light rail systems. Uh, local governments keep opening fancy new rail lines that often cost twice as much as they originally promised. They do insufficient maintenance. They hire expensive unionized labor. They provide bad management. Surprise, surprise, a lot of U.S. Uh, light rail and subway systems are, are in trouble and falling apart, frankly. Uh, you're familiar with the D.C. metro uh, disasters in recent years, but there are similar uh, costly maintenance problems in a lot of cities. New York City and Chicago uh, have similar problems. 
the solution uh, to uh, the, the problem of uh, light rail and subway uh, um, maintenance problems. The problem is not that they're underfunded, it's that the, the rail systems, uh, the reality is, despite the promises, both the capital and operating costs of those systems are much higher than usually promised. So the solution, uh, in my view, is to stop building new rail systems, to privatize the rail systems we have. Uh, Hong Kong, for example, privatized its subway system uh, 17 years ago, and it's been a big success. So myth number four uh, is that there's an infrastructure underfunding crisis. Uh, do governments uh, underinvest in infrastructure? Uh, if you look at total federal, state, and local infrastructure spending in the United States as a share of GDP, it's similar to the OECD uh, industrial country average. So it doesn't seem that there's a crisis uh, from, from that data. Or you can look historically. You can look at federal, state, local infrastructure spending all the way back to the 1920s as a share of GDP. It's basically a pretty flat line, except for the 1960s. There is a huge bubble. Uh, the 1960s uh, was, a, was a golden era for uh, U.S. infrastructure uh, spending. But that was mainly, uh, if you go back and look at the data, it was mainly the interstate highway system, uh, which was being built at the time. Uh, then after, you know, the big bulk of that was built, uh, and around 1980 or so, infrastructure spending has been pretty flat. So I don't really see a crisis there. Uh, so I don't want more uh, government infrastructure spending. I do want more efficient spending, though, and I think we would get a lot more bang for a buck on infrastructure spending uh, if we were repealed costly regulations like the Davis-Bacon labor laws so that we could, uh, we could get more bang for the buck, we could build more highways uh, with, with lower costs. So the uh, fifth and final myth, myth is that infrastructure privatization uh, is a radical thing. Uh, when the DC subway system breaks down, uh, when Amtrak trains crash, uh, when a JFK airport terminal closes, uh, as it did a couple weeks ago, from a water main leak, uh, when Trump says that, that LaGuardia looks like a third world airport, uh, I say privatize it. Uh, a lot of people think that sounds radical, but actually if you look at what's going on around the world, it is not radical at all. Uh, I mentioned, for example, on subways, uh, Hong Kong privatized its subway system, and today the system is completely unsubsidized. It earns profit, it pays income tax even back to the government. In 1996, Canada privatized its air traffic control system. Again, today it's unsubsidized. Uh, that's been a big success. Uh, airports, half of all European airports have now been privatized. Uh, the main airports in all kinds of cities like Budapest and Edinburgh and Lisbon and London, uh, all completely private. They're run as for-profit uh, publicly traded corporations. Uh, they're generally unsubsidized. They're run as a business. Uh, that's what we should do here in America as well. Uh, passenger rail, we've got Amtrak. Uh, but Britain privatized its system back in the 1990s. Uh, it's been a big success. Uh, rail ridership has actually doubled since privatization. British rail ridership is as high now. Uh, it's as high as uh, it's ever been all the way back to the 1920s. So that's been a big success. Uh, for interstate highways, I think we ought to pursue more public-private partnerships uh, to expand capacity, uh, like the, uh, the, uh, the deal that uh, uh, expanded the Capitol Beltway out in Northern Virginia. So to, uh, to wrap up here, I think Congress and uh, the Trump administration uh, are, you know, as everyone is, we're concerned about having uh, the best infrastructure we can here in America uh, to better compete in a global economy. I absolutely agree with that. We should have the best infrastructure, uh, but we're not going to get there with government ownership and top-down subsidies. I think the federal government should cut subsidies, it should privatize the infrastructure it owns, and it should uh, remove barriers to state and local privatization. Thanks a lot. Well, I guess uh, I'm, I'm sort of bringing up the end here, uh, but I also want to thank you for coming out. 
Uh, my name is Michael Tanner, uh, and I handle a variety of issues, but I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about poverty and our welfare system and what we're doing and not doing. What we're doing is primarily spending a lot of money. Uh, federal government spends about $700 billion a year fighting poverty. And state and local governments add in another $300 billion or so. So we're just spending just about a trillion dollars every year fighting poverty in this country. And there's no doubt that that spending has reduced poverty. Uh, if you want to look at poverty rates, most of the numbers suggest that poverty would be three to five percentage points higher than it is today in the absence of those programs. Yet despite that, I would still suggest that our current approach of simply throwing money at the problem is not very successful. I mean, if you'd simply take a walk through some of the poor neighborhoods in southeast D.C. or go up to Sandtown in Baltimore where Freddie Gray was killed, or go to Owsley, Kentucky, which is the poorest uh, town in America, or Fresno, California, another high poverty area, and look, walk through these communities and suggest, are these thriving communities? Are these areas where people are flourishing the way we should, add, we should want it? And I'd suggest there's a lot of reasons for this, and one of them is the fact that our welfare system is not doing very well. Our current welfare system is enormously complex and opaque. There are over 100 federal anti-poverty programs today. Seventy-some of these actually provide benefits directly to individuals, either direct cash benefits or in-kind, more likely in-kind benefits. The others provide benefits to low-income communities and various block grants and so on, community development block grants and things of that nature. This makes it very difficult, of course, for the government to understand what works and what doesn't. How do you tease out which program is being effective and which program is it isn't when you have this huge sort of stew of programs all with different eligibility rules, with different levels of benefits, with different phase-out ranges, for different communities, how can you possibly tell whether this program is effective and this program is not when they're all sort of thrown together and it's very difficult to do any sort of natural experiments on these? But it's also very difficult for the individuals themselves who have to navigate this type of system and spend enormous amounts of time trying to figure out, and do I qualify for this benefit? Well, but if I get this benefit, then I lose this benefit over here, but maybe I qualify for this other benefit. Identically situated people in the same situation, same amount of incomes can get radically different levels of government support simply based on how well they can navigate the system. And of course, there's the general cruelty of forcing people to jump through hoop after hoop after hoop and paperwork after paperwork after paperwork in order to try and qualify for benefits. The current system is enormously paternalistic. We treat poor people as if they're three years old getting an allowance. We say, here's some money that you can have for housing. But don't you dare spend that money on health care benefits. Here's some money for food, but if your health bills are too high, you can't use that money over here. And then we add in all sorts of requirements that says, well, you know, we're going to require that you do this or that. Now the big current trend is we're going to drug test you. I always wonder why we're going to drug test people who are collecting benefits for the poor, but we don't drug test people on Medicaid or, I'm sorry, Medicare or Social Security, which are government benefits as well. It's that we have this moralistic attitude towards the poor, that somehow they are less worthy. The current welfare system gets the incentives all wrong. 
You know, we talk a lot about marginal tax rates. We just went through this big tax debate here, and we talk about the marginal tax rates, very important. But the highest marginal tax rates in the world are actually for somebody who leaves welfare and takes a job. Between the phase-out of welfare benefits, the increase in taxes, and the cost of going to work, it actually makes more sense in many cases for people to actually stay on welfare than it does for them to take an entry-level job. Yet we know in the long term, employment is the way to get out of poverty. So we are actually incentivizing people to remain on the dole. Likewise, asset tests with many of these programs encourage people to consume, but discourage people from saving for their or their kids' future. You know, we give you a welfare check and we say, if you want to spend that money on new running shoes or new basketball shoes, that's cool. But if you want to put that money in account for your kids to go to school, we're going to take away your benefit. That's getting the incentives exactly wrong. And finally, I, well, we should say also welfare as it exists today doesn't actually deal with people's real needs. It sort of deals with the bottom. If you've ever seen Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we sort of focus all of our welfare benefits at the bottom of making people's material needs, of making poverty less uncomfortable. But we do little about enabling people to really actualize themselves, to become fully functioning members of society, just to be self-sufficient, to support them and their families, to rise as far as they can possibly rise based on their talents and ability. And of course, simply spending more or less money on welfare doesn't do anything to deal with the underlying structures of society and the problems we have with racism and gender discrimination and the structural problems of a, of a, of a dynamic economy and the dislocations that accompany it. None of this is going to be solved in the typical welfare debate that we have today, which is should we spend a billion dollars more on this program or a billion dollars less on that program? Personally, I'm for the billion dollars less, but that's a whole different question. Sure, we need welfare reform, but it needs to be real reform. We need to consolidate all these massive programs we don't need a hundred different programs overseen by nine different cabinet agency, uh, departments and six independent agencies and virtually every committee in Congress. We should begin to consolidate down the number of programs we have and we should move from in-kind benefits which largely pay a welfare industry of landlords and doctors and grocery stores towards giving people cash and responsibility for their own lives. But most of the important reforms that we need to do to fight poverty actually take place outside the welfare system. Essentially, what we need is for government to stop making people poor. That means we need things like criminal justice reform. You know, you can't take, as it's been reported, a million and a half young black men out of the inner city by putting them in the criminal justice system, creating a criminal record which makes it almost impossible for them to get a job or to have a family, and suggest that that's not going to have an impact on problems like non-marital birth and unemployment in the inner city, that it's not going to create additional crime, additional problems. The overcriminalization of American society has real consequences when it comes to poverty. And while most of it needs to take place at the local level, uh, we need to have education reform. We need to have schools. We know that people who drop out of high school are five times more likely to live in poverty than someone that goes on and completes college. We need to deal with the education problem, and that means more choice and more freedom and more control for parents and their children and not the teachers' unions. 
We need to deal with those laws and regulations that drive up the cost of housing, which is for most poor people their largest single expense. Yet zoning and land use laws tend to drive up the cost of housing and tend to benefit largely the privileged at the expense of the underprivileged who are trying to get that first house and are trying to pay their rent. We need to deal with banking laws that get in the way, particularly in terms of making it easier for the non-banks to offer alternatives to banking. Or something as simple as your, as your money laundering laws, which require certain forms of identification to open a bank account when 20% of poor people lack a driver's license or other types of identification to open that bank account. It requires them, in essence, to deal uh, with other forms of, of, uh, of banking or, or to carry around large amounts of cash, which then gets them arrested as potential drug dealers or gets them robbed or other problems that that creates. And most important of all, we need to stimulate growth, but that growth needs to be inclusive. That means we need to deal with the growth at the start. You can't redistribute wealth that doesn't exist. Tax cuts that we just went through do some things in that regard. But we need to deal with regulations. We need to deal with taxes. We need to deal with the debt, all of which reduce economic growth in this country. Nothing has reduced poverty in this country or the world as much as simple economic growth. But it doesn't help if that economic growth, the benefits from that economic growth, simply accrue to those at the top, which means we need to make that growth inclusive. That means enabling the poor to fully participate in that economic growth. We need to look at occupational licensing laws that block the poor from being able to get jobs or to start businesses. And, you know, we think of occupational licensing, well, doctors need a license, I'm told, or, you know, you don't want your airline pilot to never have gone to school. We're talking about in something like six states, funeral attendants need a license. We're talking about, in, you know, starting, you know, it's a, it's a story that perhaps is apocryphal, but it was said that uh, J.W. Marriott's first job was actually selling hot dogs from one of these little carts down here on the street. Today, if you want to do that, you have to post a tax bond that's like $1,500. Everyone who works for you, you have to post a bond for them. Your cart has to meet specific designs, which cost thousands of dollars. You have to get a license from the city. You have to do all these sort of things which stops you from starting that business. We need to look at occupational zoning. And you need to look at those things which start, stop people from getting a first job like the minimum wage or the Obamacare employment, employment, uh, employer mandate, things of these sorts of nature, which stops people from getting into the economy. What we need to understand is that the poor have the same aspirations as we do. They are not some lesser class of morally deficient people who are lazy or taking advantage of the situation. They are simply responding to the system that we are giving them. And we need to change that environment to one in which they can grow and achieve. And that means getting government off their backs, because the biggest impediment to people moving up in this world is the government itself. So it's a lot we can do that's not about throwing money at the problem. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope we'll have some questions.